Welcome back, Kenning Brainiacs, to the pod. We blasted through the rest of Chapter 10, and then we also blasted through all of Chapter 11. That was a good day of reading. Well done. That is boosting our stats nicely. Uh, we're going to read all of Chapter 12 today, and uh, it's going to be excellent. Uh, before we do that, where did I see that comment? I must have been on the previous thread. Hang on one moment, please. Ah, here we go. Acoustic Eels says, Okay, I think I'm going to sit the rest of this one out. I also did not read Anna Karenina, Anna Karenina, Karamazov, or The Enormous Room back in 2018. Was it really that long ago? Holy moly. So I'm not as tired to finishing the list. Thanks, Andrew Lewis, for the rundown last episode. Wish you all the best of luck. All good, Acoustic Eels. Um, but hey, I will say this, when we finish this book, we're going to do something, right? Because we'll have finished the list. We'll do something, whatever it is, some kind, maybe we did that hangout thing a while back. That was kind of cool. Or maybe just a thread, you know, just to talk about the whole experience or, you know, we'll regroup at the end. All right. Acoustic heels. So I won't say, you know, goodbye at this point. We'll, uh. We'll talk again at the end of the list. Um, but thank you for that. I also asked the question back a few days ago about what was the Hellfire Club, as I only knew it from Stranger Things. So I Googled that. And it was a club that was uh, kind of rose to fame in the 1800s, established, I think, in the late 1700s, I read. I'm paraphrasing what I just read before on Wikipedia. But it was a group of... Uh, a club for, like, rakes, you know? Men of high society who were kind of roguish bad boys. Uh, I also saw that the name Rake came from, what was it, like, um, Rakehell? It was short for Rakehell, which essentially means Hellraiser. So the Hellfire Club was a group of Hellraisers. Um, Men who would often be, you know, bad boys, for want of a better word, gamblers, womanizers, spendthrifts. I also learned that the word spendthrift doesn't mean that they were thrifty. It means that they spent lavishly, wasted usually an inherited fortune of their rich family on alcohol, partying, etc. So, Hellfire Club, an awful thing, but also sounds like a good night out, if you ask me. (laughs) I think in my uh, early adult years, I would have loved to have been part of something like that in my early 20s. Um, anywho, that's what Hellfire Club is. Um, Swim says the mum fish, he says, John Eglinton was the pseudonym of William Kirkpatrick McGee. Uh, he was an Irish author, editor, and librarian who, as an essayist and poet, he became head librarian of the National Library of Ireland after opposing the cultural nationalism of his time. He was a biographer of George William Russell, a.k.a. A.E. Gogarty was a highly visible and distinctive Dublin character during the lifetime. Gogarty appears in a number of memoirs penned by his contemporaries, notably George Moore's Hail and Farewell, where he goes both by his own name and by the pseudonym Conan. His most famous literary incarnation, however, is as Buck Mulligan, the irrepressible roommate of Stephen Dedalus in James Joyce's Ulysses. There you go. 
Kunamea was a German scholar, distinguished in his field of Celtic philology. Philology. What? Can't say that word. Philology. Uh, and literature. Mayer was considered first and foremost a lexicographer among Celtic scholars, but is known by the general public in Ireland rather as the man who introduced them to selections from ancient Irish poetry, 1911. He founded and edited four journals devoted to Celtic studies, published numerous texts and translation of old and middle Irish romances and sagas, and wrote prolifically. His topics ranging to name origins and ancient lore. Okay, so a lot of name dropping by George, in George fashion, uh, in chapter 10 and 11. I liked in chapter 10, I think chapter 10 was actually really good. Even chapter 11 was good, even though it was talking about like, you know, religion, which often puts me off, but I kind of liked the way it was summarizing how it, um, you know, Catholicism kind of started to take hold and then lose hold of Europe over the the years, and I thought that was fascinating. And I liked in chapter 10 when he went and visited Edward and called out to him from the street, and there was a pub across the road who remarked on his, you know, calling out to his friend at the window, and then he saw his mate's candle come down the stairs, all that. I thought that was really cool. Anywho. Um, that's chapter 10. And 11. So today we're going to read chapter 12. I did the math today. We've got 28 chapters left. I think it was 28. I did the math and now I forgot the math. I'm pretty sure it was 28. Nine left in this book and 19 in the final book. Toby's chatting to me over there. I'm going to pause this. I'm going to come back and read you chapter 12. Ooh, all right, apologies for that. It is uh, about 12 hours later. Um, all right, chapter 12. In Mayo, almost in my own parish, was fought the most famous battle in Irish legend, the Mayo come Devitt, the Land League, and now a discovery which will recreate Ireland. The shepherds will fight hard, but the sword I have found in my garden will prevail against the crozier, and by degrees the parish priest will pass away like his ancestor the druid. I remember the absurd review the Times published about the descent of man, descent of man, and Matthew Arnold's fine phrase about the difficulty of persuading men to rise out of the unclean straw of their intellectual habits, his very words, no doubt, and his wisest, for the human mind declines, if not turned out occasionally, mental like bodily cleanliness, is a habit, and when papists have been persuaded to bring up their children, Protestants, the next generations may cross over to be agnostic. End of the quadrille. My co-religionists will not like to hear me say it, but I will say it all the same. Protestantism is but a stage in the human journey, and man will continue to follow his natural evolution despite the endless... Solemnity of Wolfgang Goethe, who captured the admiration of all the pundits when he said that it would have been better if Luther had never been born, meaning thereby that Luther saved per perishing Christianity. Arnold, who is nearly as pompous as Goethe and more vindictive, saw that man likes to bide like a pig in a sty, but enough of Arnold. 
I must not lead my readers into thinking that a single striking phrase is sufficient condemnation for his very verose rug, rugby prose. Epitomised in that led one generation gaping into what well, epitomised in that absurd line about seeing life steadily and seeing it whole, a line that led one generation gaping into the wilderness, John Eglinton heading it. To John I shall have to go presently, but I shall have to tell A.E. the great news first. Today is Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, on Saturday night. And on Saturday night I was out on my doorstep looking down the street to see if A.E. were coming, trying to discover his appearance in that of every distant passerby, but he did not come and dinner dragged itself slowly through its three courses, and vowing that I didn't care a brass farthing. Whether he came or stayed, I rose up from the table and pitched myself into an armchair. All the same, I was glad to hear his knock about nine. He came in, sweeping a great mass of hair from his forehead and telling me that he had had to go to Fox Rock to meet some man from Germany who had written a book about economics and having discussed rural banks all the afternoon, he was ready to talk to me about impressionist painting till midnight and to read me an article which would have interested me if I had not been already absorbed by my idea. A.E., I have made a discovery that will revolutionise Ireland. It seemed to me that he would should start up from his chair and wave his hands, but he continued smoking his old pipe, looking at me from time to time, till at last there was nothing else for me to do but to throw myself upon his mercy, asking him if it weren't very wonderful that nobody had noticed the fact that dogma and literature are incompatible. He seemed to think that everybody knew that this was so, and is there anything more discouraging than to find one's daring definitions accepted as commonplace truths? Then, my dear A.E., you've been extraordinarily remiss. You should have gone down and preached in Bray, taking for your text, Dogma Corrodes the Intelligence. You weren't stoned when you preached that. The Catholics will not admit their intellectual inferiority, but if, if the history of the world proves it, all the same. When I say no Catholic literature, of, literature, of course I mean that 99, 95% of the world's literature was written by Protestants and agnostics. Even so, A.E. answered, Catholics will continue to bring up their children in a faith that hasn't produced a book worth reading since the Reformation. Well, what's to be done? A.E. was dry, very dry. The German economists seemed to have taken all the sting out of him, and I began to see that in this new adventure he would be of little use to me. Rolleston has read every literature, but he had retired to Wicklock, his family having outgrown the house on Pembroke Road, and it was reported that he now was more interested in sheep than in books. Besides, he is a Protestant, and it would be more enlightening to hear a Catholic on the subject of my great discovery. A Catholic would have to put up some sort of defence, unless indeed he entrenched himself in theology, saying that it was no part of the business of Catholicism to consider whether dogma tended to encourage or repress literary activities. To this defence, the true one, I should have no answer. Gill is my man, I said, as I got out of bed on Monday morning. He was educated at Trinity and was lived in France. It will no doubt be disagreeable to him to listen to my proofs one after the other, but my business day is not to take Gill out for a pleasant walk, but to find out what defence an educated Catholic can put up. 
Hello, my dear Moore, Gil said, raising his eyes from his writing table. I've come to take you for a walk, Gil. I'll be ready to do in a few minutes. And I watched my friend who closed one eye curiously as he signed his letters, his secretary standing over him, handing him them to him, one after the other, and answering questions until one of his lecturers came in, a man called Fletcher. The lecturer and Gil talked away, each answering the other, as echoes do down a mountainside. Until at last I had to beg Fletcher to desist. And giving Gil his hat, I persuaded him out of the office down the stairs. Even when we were in the street, he was undecided whether he, we should go along the square, wandering down Grafton Street, or whether we should treat ourselves to the Pembroke Road. The hawthorns are in flower and thrushes are singing there. Gil agreed and we tripped along together. Gil yawning in the midst of his enjoyment and as is his wont. Delightful little yawns. We yawn like dogs. A sudden gape and all over is over. But Gil yawns like a cat and cats yawn as he eats with gourmandise. We can read a cat's yawn in his eyes long before it happens and in his jaw. Tom settles himself and waits for the yawn, enjoying its anticipation. His, sens- his sensuality is expressed in his yawn. His moustaches go up just like the cat's. His yawn is one of the sights of our town and is an exhibit- exhibition constantly at the Abbey Theatre. We do not go to the Abbey Theatre to watch it, but we watch it when we are at the Abbey. And we enjoy it often during a bad play than we do during a good one. The playboy distracts our attention from it, but when Deidre is performed, his yawns will while our tedium away. His yawn is what is most real, the most essential in him. It is himself, it inspires him, and out of his yawn wisdom comes. Does this theory regarding the source of the wisdom conflict with an earlier theory? He yawns in the middle of his own speeches, often as so I am assured, than any one of his auditors. He has been seen yawning in chapel, and it is said that he yawns even in those intimate moments of existence when, but I will not labour the point. We can have no exact knowledge of this subject, whether or not Gil yawns when he... We will dismiss all the stories that have collected about these yawns as apocryphal, restricting our account to those yawns that happen while in our faces. Gil and I leaned over Bagot Street Bridge, watching the canal boat rising up in the lock, the opening of the gates to allow the boat to go through and the hitching on the rope to the crossbar. The browsing horse, roused by a cry, stuck his toes into the towing path and the strain began again all the way to the next lock, the boy flourishing a leafy bow, just pulled from the hedge. We continued our interrupted walk, glad that we had not been born canal horses, Gill's step as airy as his thoughts, and as we walked under flowering bows, we began. he began to talk to my, me about my volume of peasant stories. I was glad he did, for I had just found another translator, an Irish speaker, a Kerry man, and reckoned on this piece of news to interest him. But as soon as I mentioned that my friend was a Protestant, he was going to take orders. Gill spoke of supers, and on my asking him his reason for doing so, he said a man with so Irish a name and coming from so Catholic a part of the country could not have come from any but Catholic stock. It has always seemed to me that if a man may modify his political attitudes, as Gill had done, the right to modify his spiritual can hardly be denied. But among Catholics, the vert is regarded with detestation. With them, religion is looked upon as a family inheritance even more than politics, a damned irreligious lot, I thought. 
but did not speak my thought, for I wished the subject dogma or literature to arise naturally out of the conversation. I did not attempt to guide it, just dropped a remark that even the man in the question of the Catholic clock had come to separate himself from the Roman reformer that one of the sort of fucking this is just a fucking boring book. <clears throat> Excuse my bad language. Uh, what we're saying, dogma, literature, rise naturally out of the conversation. I did not attempt to guide it, just to drop a remark that even if a man in question came from Catholic stock and had separated himself from the Roman formulas for worldly reasons, it did not seem to me that he should blame him, life being what it is, a tangle of motives. But it is difficult to stint oneself, and I was soon asking Gill for what reason would he have a man change his religion if pecuniary and sexual motives were excluded? No man... Verts their theological except Newman, I said. Do you know another? And during our walk, all the reasons used for averting, averting were discussed. A new reason has just occurred to me. Gill literature. Rome is always the patron for the arts. Pagan Rome, yes, Alexander 11, uh, 6. Saved the world from a revival of the Middle Ages. Burning but disagreeable monks of Vernola and Julius II saved the Renaissance, but since the Council of Trent, Catholics have almost ceased to write. Gill laughed a little recklessly and contented himself with saying, yes, it is very extraordinary if it be fact. But, Gill, why not consider this question in our walk? I would sooner that the defence of Catholicism was taken by one more capable than myself. Whom would you care to see undertake the task if not yourself? He spoke of Father Tom Finlay, but it was Father Tom that set me thinking of the very subject, for when I said that Irish Catholics had written very little, he concurred, saying that May Newth, with all his education, had produced even a theological work, his very words. Did he say that? Gill asked, with the interest that all Catholics take in every word that comes from their priests. But I would sooner hear what you, a layman, have to say, flattered by the invitation Gill somewhere, meagre mind, began to put forth long weedy sentences, and from these I gathered that I was possibly right in saying that the Church had defined her doctrines at a Council of Trent, and therefore it might be said that the Catholic mind was less free in the 20th century than of the Middle Ages. All the same, the great period of French literature came after the Reformation. You know French literature as well as I do, Gill, and we'll just run through it. French literature is the 16th century represented by Descartes, Rebellius, and Montaigne, all three agnostics. In the 17th century, French literature is an account of Louis Corzon, which you look upon in the Golden Age, began with Corneille and Racine, but the tragedies of Corneille and Racine do not attempt any criticism of the life or the conduct of life, for their heroes and heroines were not Christians, and their ideas could not come under the ban of the church. Felon a gentle light suited to weak eyes, but remember always that my contention is not that no Catholic ever wrote a book, but that 95% of the world's literature is written by agnostics and Protestants. Boussou? Very elaborate and erudite rhetorician, whom Louis fourteen employed to unite all the Protestant sects in the Gallican Church. He set himself to this task, but before it was finished, Louis fourteen had settled his differences with the Pope. The beauty of Pascal's writing, you will not deny, and his Catholicism is more than doubtful, Gill. The Port Royal School has always been suspected to Protestantism, and you will not deny that Pascal's repudiation of the sacraments justifies the suspicion that truly a difficult phrase to translate, Gill. The best that I can do at this moment is sacraments help you to believe, but they stupefy you. But you know, French as well as I do, Gill protested against my interpretation. Then why was the phrase suppressed in the Port Royal edition by the Jesuit? Cousin restored it after referring to the original manuscript. Now in the 18th century we have Voltaire, the assist, the Archmocker, the real Brasseur de Feu, Rousseau, a Protestant whose writings it is said brought about the French Revolution, Diderot and Montesquieu. The 19th century in France was all agnostic. Chateaubriand. 
you can have him and welcome, for through him we shall escape the danger of proving too much. But, but what? I was thinking of his name, which is very like him. Upon my word, Gil, our names are our souls, a most suitable name for the author of Le Grin de Christianimi, a name to be incised on the sepulchre of St. Malo among the rocks out at sea. But he ordered that none should be put upon the slab, a name for an ambassador, a diplomatist, a religious reformer, but not one for a poet, an artist, a pompous, ridiculous name, a soft, unreal name, a grotesque name, a winely name, a spongy name, spongy as a brioche, Chatterbush. And looking into Gill's face, I read a gentle distress. His books were as means to an end instead of being an end in themselves. To criticize him in a phrase that would have appreciated, I might say, gent blah blah French stuff. Whatever you may think of this writing, you cannot deny this Catholicism. And one of these days, when I am feeling less tired, he wrote Le Genie de Christianity in his mistress's house, reading her a chapter every night before they went to bed. It is true that Catholics must have mistresses as well as Protestants, but you are an Irish Catholic and would be loath to admit as much. Chateaubriand was content to re- was content to regret Attila, but Edward burnt his early poems. Verlaine was a Catholic and he was a great poet. There is no question about that. Gil, you see, I am dealing fairly with you, but as Chateaubriand, Verlaine's criticism Catholicism, na la nouvelle General de Parvisi, we he wrote lovely poems in the French language. Some were pious, some were indecent, and he spaced them out in Parliament. He did not look upon Catholicism as a means of government. He just liked the liturgy. Mary and the saints were pleasing to him in stained glass, and when he came out of prison, he was repentant and wrote Sigas. Paul Verlaine, since the Elizabethan days, was a poet ever downed with a more beautiful name, and his verses correspond to his name, Udu, French stuff, and a refrain from my ballad. What shall he say? Out of hatred of the Voltaire, grocer, my friend, this man's plunged into magic. The more ridiculous the miracle, the more he believed in it than the French ecclesiastics could be sorry to have about them many Catholics upon whom, upon my word, Gill, theory that Catholicism, Catholicism hasn't produced a readable book since the Reformation stands on more legs than four. Some carts were passing at the time, and when a little rattle of their wheels died down, I asked Gill what he thought of my discovery, but detecting or seeming to detect a certain petulance in his voice, I interrupted. But Gill, I don't see why the discussion should annoy you. It isn't as if I were asking you to reconsider your position regarding the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception of Transubstantiation and the Pope's infallibility. So far as I know, there is no dogma declaring that Catholics are not intellectually inferior to the Protestants and agnostics. Your religion leaves you quite free to accept my theory. Indeed, I think it encourages you so forth. Does not Catholicism always refer to the obedient and the poor in spirit to the courageous? The learned and the wise, and I spoke of the imitation of Christ to Gill, became so petulant that I thought it would be well to desist and began to speak instead on one of his favourite subjects, compromise. At once he held forth, disclaiming the ideologies of the French Revolution who would remake the world according to their idea without regard to the facts of human nature, and then, as if preoccupied by his intellectual relationship with Machiavelli, Gill entered upon a discussion regarding the duties of a statesman, saying that all great reforms had been Reforms had been affected by compromise. It was by her genius for compromise that England had built up the empire, and her he continued in his strain until it at last was impossible for me to resist the temptation to ask him to explain to me the difference between trimming and compromise, which he did very well, inflicting defeat upon me. The trimmer, he said, compromises for his own advantage, irrespective of the welfare of the state, but the statesman who compromises is influenced by his sympathy for the needs of humanity, which should not be changed too quickly. And 
This, the lag end of our argument, carried us pleasantly back over Bagger Street Bridge, but at the corner of Herbert Street, the street in which Gil lives, I could not resist a Parthian shot. But Gilla, if compromise be so essential to human affairs, is it not a pity that the Irish haven't followed the example of the English, especially in religion, I said. As Gil did not answer me at once, I followed him to the door of his house. It can't be denied that Protestantism is a compromise. This, Gil had to admit, but it is not one, I said, that you are likely to accept. He laughed, and I returned to Eli Place, pleased by the rickety lodging house appeared of Bagger Street against the evening sky, and for the moment, forgetful of the compatibility of dogma and literature, my thoughts melted into a meditation, the subject of which was that the sun sets nowhere so beautifully as it does at the end of Baggett Street. As the clocks had not yet struck seven, I turned into Stevens Green and followed the sleek borders of the brimming lake, admiring the willow trees in their first greenness and their reflections in the tranquil water, the old 18th century brick, the slender balconies, and the wide flights of steps seemed conscious that they had fallen into evil days, and horrified at the sight of the shop that he had run up at the corner of the green, I cried, other shops will follow it in this beautiful city of Dublin, I will become, in very few years, as garish as London. To keep Dublin, it might be well to allow it to slumber in its Catholicism. And at these words, my talk with Gil, which had already become a memory, rose up before me. He isn't a stupid man, I said, but why does his intelligence differ from mine and from the intelligence of every Protestant and agnostic? We are different. Catholics lack initiative. I suppose that it is that. The Catholic mind loses its edge quickly. Sex sharpens it for a little while, but when the Catholic marries and settles down, he very soon becomes like an old carving knife that carves nothing. The two whetstones are sex and religious discussion, and we must keep passing our intelligence up one and down the other. The ducks climbed out of the water and the gulls. There was not one in the air nor on the water, and after wondering a while if they had returned to the sea, I decided for good and all that I owed the preservation of my own intelligence to my theological interests. Some readers may prefer or think they prefer my earlier books, but none who deny that my intelligence has sharpened, whereas Gills, my cook, will grumble if I keep dinner waiting and I return to Eli Place at, to eat and to meditate on the effect of dogma on literature. Whew, what a loser. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow.